Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. We're so glad to see you this morning. I'm Suzanne Freeman with Friends of the Library, and we help sponsor this. We love our library. We're honored today to have Dr. John Bostad as our speaker. John is retired from the History Department at the University of Tennessee, where he studied food riots during the Industrial Revolution. His topic today is the book Food Politics by Robert Parlberg. The world's food is drenched in politics to a far greater extent than most of us realize. Food politics, what everyone needs to know, the second edition, 2013, much changed from the first, is a good, concise introduction to all these areas. Parlberg is an agricultural economist, a professor of political science at Wellesley, a foreign aid and development advisor. He talks especially about four broad areas, quantities of food and hunger crises, sustainability, health, and the world food system. We can't possibly do justice to all of those today, but I'm going to pick out a few. There are two big schools of thought about food politics. The first one focuses on food supply, food security, i.e., do people have enough to eat? This school of thought has about quantities of food has dominated food politics since World War II. It's the orthodox school. The food security school defines the problem as world hunger and poverty. The solution is to increase production, especially by raising productivity of agriculture, more output per input, more bushels of corn or wheat, per acre of land, per pound of fertilizer or herbicide, per unit of energy, per input of labor, and so on. Okay, so produce more. Food supply, produce more. The second school of thought developed in more recent decades is about sustainability. It places food issues in bigger, more complex contexts of whole food systems of both production and consumption. Now, some of these issues, some of these areas involve our, our planet's ecosystem, social and cultural factors like economic inequality and women's status, health factors like malnutrition and obesity, and citizen participation in making food policies. Parlberg, his orientation is rooted in, he frequently refers to big global statistics and national average prices and incomes. So guess what? Parlberg is mostly in the first school of thought, emphasizing food security, food supply, producing more. But he also recognizes, in laying out all these issues, he also recognizes that the second school's sustainability issues are critical, and sometimes he shows how the two can be combined. Okay, the first area, quantities, production. Is there enough food? The first area. Issues of production, population growth, and hunger crises. Is the world facing a Malthusian trap? That's, a, that's something we hear sometimes about. 
Um, a Malthusian trap, which means population is growing exponentially faster than agricultural production. No, says Parlberg, not necessarily. Yes, we know that world population is expected to increase from 7 billion now to 9 billion by 2050. But first of all, population growth, the whole world population growth, is slowing. Birth rates are declining, not only in the affluent West, but also in big developing countries like India, Indonesia, Mexico, and Brazil. Birth rates are declining for complex reasons. Partly, it's because as people's incomes grow, they don't need to have as many children. And partly, it's women in these countries get more choices than just having babies. Second, agricultural production is rising fast since World War II. Since 1980, American agricultural production has increased by 40%, while the amounts of fertilizer, insecticide, and herbicide all decreased, both in absolute quantities and in using less of these inputs per output per bushel of corn and so on. Third, Parlberg emphasizes that malnutrition has fallen in the last 25 years from around 18% of world population to around 12% of world population. But the absolute number of the malnourished people remains large, around 900 million across the world, sort of like taking an average. But I think the important thing to say is malnutrition is a much more important and bigger problem today than famine. That's a key factor. The United States and the, the United States and the United Nations cooperated to set up a famine early warning system that has worked. It's almost prevented famines, with one big exception, and this illustrates food politics again. The big exception is famine prevention fails where civil war prevents international aid in places like Somalia. So that's that's an interesting factoid. Fourth, a region that is today facing a nearly Malthusian bind is sub-Saharan Africa. In the past, boosting farm production in Africa often meant expanding the farmed area with disastrous damage to lands and forests. And Parlberg says, and he spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa, he says that's because this expansive rather than intensive approach to agriculture is because African farmers' productivity is so low. Most of them do not use fertilizer or improved seeds, which have been developed for African ecologies, which are different from other places. And only 4% of their land is, is irrigated. So Parlberg's solution to African malnutrition then is to increase the productivity of small farmers by better seeds, by fertilizer, machinery, and by government investment in roads, in providing electricity, in education and agricultural research. Fifth, Parlberg emphasizes that across the world, land is actually being withdrawn from agricultural production because of productivity improvements. And finally, on this issue of quantities of food available, if we wealthy Westerners ate less meat, would that make more grain available to the world's hungry? 
No, says Parlberg. According to a study by the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, and you can feel free to email me. I'm not going to give you websites and stuff, but if you'd like links to all these agencies that I'm talking about and all these sources, just, just email me, and I'll, I'll give you a lot of links. IFPRI, it's, it's headquartered in Washington. It's generally sympathetic to the poor and hungry. According to their studies, if affluent Westerners cut their meat consumption by 50%, it would only reduce poor children's hunger by a half of 1%. That's because global markets don't transfer changes in one area to another area very efficiently. However, according to a recent analysis by the UN's special reporter on the special rapporteur, on the right to food, meat production might account for half of the greenhouse gases human beings put into the atmosphere. Here's the report, and again, email me if you'd like to follow this up. There's, there's a lot of great introductory material out there. Now, let's go to the world food crisis of 2008. That may have been a watershed, kind of still too early to, to know, in food politics the crisis was the prices of basic cereals like wheat and rice spiked, meaning they jumped 50 to 100% above the previous year's levels. Those were called price spikes, especially in Africa and South Asia. And food riots occurred in about two dozen developing countries from Haiti and Central America all the way over to Africa and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa to Egypt, Bangladesh, and so on. What caused the price spikes? World agencies, like the Food and Agriculture Association of the United Nations, were taken by surprise by these jumps. They hastily called a food summit in Rome in June of 2008. Its immediate analysis of the price spike took the orthodox approach. The problem was food supply in the developing world. Well, what else can we say about the causes of these disturbing and disruptive price spikes of 2008? First, yeah, there were some droughts and bad weather in big producing areas like Australia, parts of the United States, and so on. But Parlberg tells us, this is significant, Parlberg tells us physical shortages were not the big problem, and that has often been the case in its accessibility measured by both whether it's there and can we afford it. So accessibility is generally a bigger issue than, than physical shortage. So physical shortage was not the big problem, but I would also warn critically that against his macro approach to global statistics, you can have enough food in the whole world market and still have acute shortages in, different, in specific countries. <laughs> as, as one of my favorite authorities said, uh, food shortage is, has, is very localized in the stomach. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that sometimes the big statistics don't quite get it. Secondly, besides the bad weather, secondly, once price spikes began in 2008, major grain producers cut off their exports. And these had been big grain producers like India, Indonesia, China, Russia, and other producers. Parlberg singled that out as the biggest cause of the price spikes, of the aggravation. 
Thirdly, ethanol. The diversion of corn to ethanol by United States and European policies, food politics. By policies, yes, that is a cause, that is a factor in food crises today. 24% of an American food crop goes to ethanol. And about two-thirds of recent increases in American and European production of corn go to ethanol. So ethanol is a major food politics issue because its manufacture has been promoted by American tax credits of $5 billion a year and subsidies, agricultural subsidies, of $4 billion a year. Policies fiercely supported by corn growers and their farm bureau. Other Western nations had similar policies about ethanol, but many, including partly the United States, backed away from them after people blamed the food crisis of 2008 on ethanol. Parlberg insists that the food price spikes of 2008 were caused much more by the oil price spikes and their effects on agriculture rather than government policies about ethanol. Fourth, one of the long-term drivers of the price spikes that, were, that was not emphasized, and think about why, that was not emphasized by the United Nations' first analyses was that the growing consumption of meat by growing middle classes in big countries like India and China. Okay? That diverts, and that large-scale move to meat diverts a lot of grains to animal feed, from human use to animal food. This shift to Western diets is going on on a much broader scale. Western diets, we mean more meat, fatty, sweet, complex, and processed foods, plus McDonald's for the masses, serving chicken in China and soy burgers in India. (laughs) That's called, this shift to Western diets is called the nutrition transition. And it multiplies obesity as a growing health and economic issue in the world, even as malnutrition decreases. Now, where does food politics enter into this? Well, our current economic orthodoxy, itself a political construction, I would argue, makes consumer choice the top priority. Against that background, industry lobbies can prevent regulation. There may be some positive possibilities uh, for combating obesity by regulating foods and drinks available in public schools. Let's take a closer look at these riots. As a result of the price spikes in 2008, food riots took place in about two dozen countries, from the Caribbean to Africa to the Middle East to South Asia. Here are some features of food riots the media does not usually notice. This is based on Bosted's research. First, it's not the hungriest people who riot. The hungriest people in the developing world are in rural areas. Riots took place in the cities. Severe hunger does not usually, this is against everybody's intuition, common sense is wrong. Severe deprivation doesn't drive people to riot Severe deprivation usually demobilizes people by either physical weakness or mental apathy. 
Second, it's not the weakest people then who riot, but those who have both outrage and collective strength. Rioters often bring in solidarities developed long before the day of riot, and those solidarities enable them to act collectively. In other words, to act as a team, you might say, as a big team, a crowd. For instance, a powerful labor movement led the food riots in Egypt in 2008. In Bangladesh, 20,000 striking garment workers led food protests. Cameroon's riots were preceded by a taxi driver's strike against high prices and then further inflamed by two of those ever-dangerous pop musicians with a song entitled Constipation Constitution. Third, there's method in the madness of crowds. Crowds don't go crazy because rioters can be shot or hanged. So they may seize food, but they also demand action from their government. In Haiti, for instance, crowds first stormed the U.S. peacekeepers' base camp and seized all the grain stored for them. And then, before the next day, crowds filled the streets in the capital went to the presidential palace, banged on the gates to tell the president to join them and do something. That's food politics. How effective were the politics of food riots? Well, they could get immediate results, immediate relief. In Egypt, after the food riots started, the prime minister rushed over to this factory city with a whole package of economic goodies, uh, pay bonuses and food subsidies and so on. In Haiti, however, the government was so weak, you could push it. It was like pushing a rope because you could push it. All it could do was beg for aid from international donors and get a little money for school lunches and then to uh, subsidize fertilizer, which was going to help in the long run. In West Africa, many governments took immediate measures to sort of put out the fire of food riots. The government of Mauritania, for instance, delivered emergency food relief, price controls, reductions in rice import taxes and subsidies to utility companies and farmers. So they rushed out there to pacify people. Now, India's export ban of 2008, which is a big thing, uh, India's export ban was itself a kind of food politics, wasn't it? The Democratic government of India was protecting its own people, putting their interests ahead of, you know, world markets, especially after they had had food riots the previous year. The government of Niger was actually ahead of the crisis on account of uh, food politics. They had had, Niger had had food riots in 2005, so the government set up a ministry to coordinate food prices, and when the crisis of 2008 began, that food price ministry moved into quick action to remedy it, and that, said one activist, kept people from taking to the streets. So they knew what they were doing. What about more lasting gains from food riots? What did those big international agencies, the UN, the World Bank, and the IMF, do with their newly awakened concerns? Well, the short answer is it's a little hard to tell at this point. Uh, still searching that out. The World Food Summit that June declared four major kinds of policies to reduce world hunger. First, funding for emergency aid, just immediate aid. Second, 
better coordination of international reserve supplies. Third, international aid for more productive technology for poorer areas, plus education and training for small farmers. And fourth, better representation of ordinary civilians on world food policy making. Now, Parlberg tells us that before long, the president of the World Bank, Robert Zellick, and the G8 world powers also pledged to increase their financial support for long-term agricultural development. This thing about education, research, roads, electricity, colleges, and so on. And in 2009, President Obama led the G20 nations to pledge more international aid for agricultural development. What followed? Parlberg tells us the U.S. quadrupled its aid in three years to reach $1.3 billion in 2012, but other countries' contributions fell far short of their pledges. So the big question that I have to leave that issue with, it remains to be seen how far real money will follow all these uh, pious rhetoric about increasing international investment in agricultural supply. Now, what about issues of sustainable agriculture? Well, first, Parlberg summarizes the Green Revolution, which most of you have heard of. He summarized it very much in keeping with his supply-oriented approach. What was the Green Revolution? In Asia, plant scientists developed new Asian seeds, that is, from Asian grains and for Asian conditions for wheat and rice, and they were seeds that were a lot more productive when given proper amounts of fertilizer and water. The results were a huge boom in agricultural production in Asia, in China and India, and it was fairly widely spread. Uh, the benefits were felt by small peasant farmers in India and felt widely among in Chinese farms. By contrast, in Latin America, the wealthy old elites descended from colonial times turned over to commercial farming and just shoved the peasants off the land. The Green Revolution did not reach Africa because Africa has different ecologies, so you can't just bring Asian seeds and expect them. They don't yet have these new seeds, but some help is on the way. They need seeds developed from African stock for African conditions. There is some help on the way. But Parlberg believes that there could be a combination of his food supply approach and sustainable farming. Some sustainable approaches have already been scaled up or combined, combining sustainability with science-based farming. For example, very old techniques, these go back at least 250 years in Britain, like crop rotations to re-nourish the soil, manure, nitrogen-fixing plants, and then newer innovations like biological predators of pests. A big innovation that you may not have heard of, I hadn't, was no-till farming. Don't plow the land in order to save labor, fuel, energy, and erosion. Another kind of approach to sustainability is, is what Paul Burke calls precision farming, that would involve the use of better chemicals, uh, less persistent in the soil, and you need less of them. The use of less fuel and fertilizer, the use of 
irrigation by rotary methods or by drip irrigation rather than irrigation canals where you lose a lot and you get a lot of pollution. Um, injection of fertilizer into the soil right at the roots rather than spraying it on the surface to be washed off. The results of precision farming, he says, are since 1980, per bushel of corn, per bushel of corn, the inputs have dropped a lot. Energy use is down 43%, land use down 30%, soil erosion down 67%, irrigation water down 53%, greenhouse gases down also. So the precision farming works. Parlberg does concede that some environmentalist critics don't like the fact that it requires high levels of capital, capital inputs, and they also distrust the non-natural approaches. I would suggest that it might be well to uh, avoid seeing a simple opposition, an either-or, between environmental sustainability and better agricultural technology like improved seeds or better irrigation techniques. In fact, we can find some big food corporations looking beyond today's balance sheet. Uh, Companies like Danone, Nestle, Unilever, Kellogg's, Kraft, McDonald's, and so on have created the Sustainable Agriculture Initiative to promote sustainable agriculture worldwide. Again, it remains to see what the fruits are. It's been going for about 10 years. Other sustainable issues in food politics. Parlberg agrees with environmentalists that factory farming pollution and the use of antibiotics to make animals gain weight, both of those are problems with political roots in these powerful farm lobbies. Both Parlberg and the environmentalists, this is an interesting idea, agree that thanks to food lobbies, Congress does not make the polluters include the costs of cleanup of their pollution in their production costs. Instead, those costs of cleanup are externalized to us. So that's, again, another aspect of food politics that we don't read about in our papers, certainly. Parlberg says the biggest problem in sustainable food production is fish which is preferred by many more consumers in Asia than in the West. 87% of the world's natural fishing areas are either maxed out or or virtually at maximum sustainable levels of fishing. International politics makes it very hard to regulate international fishing because many of these are in international waters, And fish-eating countries either resist regulation or simply don't cooperate with it. As for fish farming, as an alternative, 90% of which takes place in Asia, there are problems, of course, that we know about with disease, but also there's the toll on wild fish because salmon are grown by catching wild fish and feeding them to the farmed salmon. And it can take 10 pounds of wild fish to produce one pound of beautiful pink salmon. Finally, for another, for an alternative comprehensive view of world agriculture, I'd refer you to the UN's, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, who has issued a whole stream of reports since 1909, a whole stream of reports on different topics, and this is the big summary one issued a couple months ago. 
If you'd like references for this, just please email me, boastad at utk.edu, and I can give you that card. So email me or Google right to food, UN right to food, but this is a whole big approach. His final cumulative report of this year argues that the way to achieve the right to food worldwide is chiefly to move the world's food systems back to small farmers, to more local markets, to more diverse, biologically diverse production of more diverse foods. It's a brilliant and convincing plan, but think about it. The political obstacles to realizing that are huge, both globally and at the country level. That brings us finally to the world politics of food, also known as the U.S. food regime for the 50 years after World War II. Parlberg explains that the price spikes of 2008 hurt consumers particularly in those countries that allowed themselves to become dependent on imported food. Well, how did, they, how did countries that had once been self-sufficient in their production become dependent on food imports? The answer is their domestic food production was crippled by what scholars called the U.S. food regime, which covered the world, because the United States was a huge player, the hegemonic power in world economic trade. In stunning contradiction to the free market, non-intervention orthodoxy that's dominated global economics for the past, for the 50 years, the end the last half of the 20th century, in stunning contradiction to this free market dogma, American farm policies subsidized farmers that fostered grain surpluses the United States then subsidized exports, food exports, free trade, <laughs> and then dumped those surpluses as U.S. food aid on developing countries, putting their farmers out of business. They, they, they were dumping grain on the, on the developing countries back below the cost of production. So food aid was hardly an unmixed blessing for these poor nations. And Western European and Commonwealth nations followed American policies in order to stay level with the United States. And when working together, these Western nations exempted agriculture from all these decades of the big global push for free trade in these big international trade negotiations it's been going on for 40, 50, 60 years. Agriculture is exempted that's food politics. So this international food regime helped to wipe out peasant farming in much of the third world. Haiti, for instance, had long been self-sufficient in its staple rice. But the flood of American food aid, which Haitians called Miami rice, <laughs> put small farmers out of business. In 20 years, Haiti went from self-sufficiency to heavy dependence on American rice imports. And finally, another dimension of this world politics of food is the International Monetary Fund's austerity mandates, especially in the 70s and 80s, the so-called structural adjustment plans. What happened was the developing countries grabbed hold of Western models of economic development, 
and in trying to follow them, they went bankrupt. So then they turned to the IMF for bailouts. The IMF said, sure, if you want a bailout, you'll have to adopt our austerity plan. And that meant replacing several of their protective food policies with free trade policies. So these developing countries had to cut their welfare subsidies for food and fuel that were part of their social contract that made life in the cities possible. Because their regime, even dictatorial regimes, often rest on a social contract. That social contract is that the people accept the regime if the regime takes care of their food security. Second, they had to drop import tariffs that protected their own farmers from cheap American imports. And thirdly, they had to lower government regulations on the actions of foreign capital coming in. Parlberg does not, interestingly enough, tell those stories in his chapter on who governs the world food system, so we have to go to other places to put that together. So summing up, a huge area of the politics of food includes production and sustainability issues, trade, health, farm policies and food riots, international aid to agriculture, and much, much more. I'm going to end there so we can discuss this together, ask some questions. Let's not try to win debates. These are, these are fantastically debatable issues, but let's try to share more information or different perspectives, if you have, because in a group like this, I'm sure there's a lot of people that know stuff. Go ahead. Um. I think there's something that that's being overlooked here. Uh, you, uh, you, you, and you, you said that that the population is projected to increase from five billion to seven billion by 2050. To nine billion. I'm sorry. Nine, yeah. Right. Yeah. Nine billion. And you also said that increasingly, as people become more affluent throughout the world, that they're adopting a Western diet, which means more and more grain is going to go to animal feed rather than to directly to people. Um, the IPCC just told us that for the first time, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the, yeah, yeah, the, the UN group, uh, just told us that for the first time in recent history, you can tell me how many decades this has been, uh, world food production has been level and is projected to fall in the future, I guess primarily because of increasing drought and desertification uh, and and then ultimately also I guess due to the loss of livable and arable land beneath the sea in much of the world yeah so it it, it sounds like inevitably uh, there are going to be food shortages. So long term, what do you do about that? Well, I think that's why, that's why I say Parlberg is mainly on the old school idea where you can produce your way out of that. I think the factors you're bringing up are, no, you can't. Sustainability, I think sustainability has to be taken into account. And this UN rapporteur who is all about feeding the world's population says, no, we can't. He, said, he says the old kinds of agriculture inherited from the 20th century have failed. So that's in line with what you're saying. 
And as I say, he has a whole broad picture of how to get better, but realizing it is <laughs> going to be very uphill. Yes, sir. Uh, the concept of genetically modified crops, I'm not sure if yep. that's interchangeable with the Green Revolution that you referenced, yep. but does Perlberg uh, take a position yep. on that issue? And yep. is there also a developing consensus uh, in the world? I know that there are some who say that we don't know the consequences and it's too dangerous, and others who say that that's a uh, Scarsdale uh, reaction and that the poor people would rather have something than nothing. Yeah. My own personal view is, and this is not based on a lot of study, but my own personal view is that Europeans have reacted almost in panic to the idea of GMOs, and then Africans have followed them. Whereas, it seems to me, I come from Iowa, where <laughs> selection, not genetic engineering, but selection has always been part of the story. I mean, for instance, Iowa farmers have bought their seeds from seed companies like Pioneer Hybrids, for decades instead of saving their seeds to plant. Why? Because if they plant their own hybrid seeds, they might get the parents' plants. But they take the good hybrid and, and go with that. So I think there, there are probably different kinds of genetic modifications. There is a myth that, that Monsanto, the most famous myth, Monsanto developed terminator seeds, which, which didn't produce and therefore had to be bought from Monsanto. That turns out to be a myth, at least by the account of, of, a, of a student of the story uh, from NPR, whom we expect to get reliable information. So I think GMOs, yeah. I mean, I think you can, you can definitely go into dangerous, but I don't think the fact that it's just the fact that it's genetically modified means you can't touch it. Well, John, I seem to hear a, a disconnect between the idea that we can't produce our way out of it and that we've somehow, uh, over whatever recent years he refers to, have taken 30% of the agricultural land out of production. Okay. It wasn't 30%, but I think when, what you're hearing a, when you're hearing a disconnect, mm -hmm. I must say that I, I, I personally, Parlberg is a great introduction to the issues. Mm -hmm. He's not gospel, Dis and I don't think he's gospel, and I don't think we necessarily can produce our way out. So I think there is a disconnect with the idea of producing our way out. Sure. And what the United Nations says about sustainability. I just got the numbers wrong. Yeah. Uh, second aspect. But uh, I think, but I think that we shouldn't, we shouldn't eliminate productivity gains. We shouldn't say, oh. oh, in other words, if you could make a lot of small farmers, millions of small farmers more productive, that would do a huge amount for hungry people. What about the move, particularly by the Chinese, to either buy or lease yeah. vast amounts of land, yeah. particularly South America and Africa? Yeah. I think he dances away from that issue in a way that's not very good, in which he says, yeah, but a lot of local folks are complicit, like local government officials, because of corruption and so on. That doesn't really solve the problem. There are huge, this is called land grabs. Have you heard of land grabs, you guys? That means China, particularly, goes into Africa and buys up, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of acres here, arable land that then they are going to control, and they have different ways of controlling it, but they're buying farmland. They're extending their own farmland, that's, and that's a big problem, yeah. And that's a form of agricultural investment that probably doesn't help the world. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they're going to find uh, riots when the folks outside the Exactly, exactly. Well, Chinese, you know, Chinese peasants have themselves resisted uh, their own government in tens of thousands of episodes, so I wouldn't be surprised if...
Africans get it together. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.